how do they get corrupted? They get corrupted because they have nobody in their ear saying, this is the conservative thing to do. This is why you need to do this. They've got lobbyists in one ear, leadership in the other ear. And if they provoke either one of those, then the governor will call and say, you got to be a team player. You got to come on board. You got to do all this stuff. And there's nobody out there telling them otherwise. So you almost can't blame them. Uh, and then once they fall into the trap of always listening to leadership, then they realize that the only way for their bills to be heard is to play along. The only way that they can get a committee uh, seat is to play along. And then the corruption is full and complete. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment. And this week, it's just me. This episode is being taped during that sleepy week of Thanksgiving when all of Washington decamps to do even less work than usual. Um, I had on a fantastic guest today, Andy Roth, who's the president of the State Freedom Caucus Network. We'll talk more about him in a moment. But in the meantime, if you are a young person who wants to move to D.C. and get involved and wants us to pay for it, the Fellowship for American Statecraft application for this spring will be closing soon. Apply right now. I'm serious. Or if you know someone who's very smart and young and talented and wants to get involved, send it to them. Have them apply ASAP. It doesn't take that long. Um, send us an email if you have any issues with it. We really want um, to to get you here. And we've already got a bunch of fantastic applications, but we want more. And if for whatever reason we can't accept you in the spring, then we'll look at the summer or the fall. But that program is now year-round. Highly encourage you guys to come. AM Fridays are summer lunches on Capitol Hill. You should be coming to those. Go to AmericanMoment.org and find the link to fill out the form for that. Those are still going on through the end of the year um what else do we have cooking here uh the backlog of this podcast continues to grow we're coming up on the holiday season here you're gonna have a lot of time on the road be sure to go back and uh, absorb uh, all of the fantastic stuff that we've done previously but now we'll talk about our our guest this week andy roth is the president of the state freedom caucus network previously he worked for a combined 18 years at the club for growth and club for growth foundation and most recently as the foundation's executive director before that he was a securities trader for an established broker dealer in omaha nebraska um he has you know, been published literally everywhere under the sun. He's been a fellow at the Claremont Institute. He got his bachelor's degree in business administration from the University of Kansas and a master's degree in economics from George Mason University. We don't talk about a lot of state politics stuff here on this show, even though it's a source of immense interest to me, because I think all the sociological concerns we have about how politics actually works in D.C. are ever more present at the state level. We talk about that, uh, and that's a really nerdy way of saying what we talked about, but we talk about what are the incentives that a state rep has? Who's the pressures acting on them? Who are the good forces acting on them? What's their life like? What do they care about? And how do we, uh, under this framework that Andy has established of the State Freedom Caucuses Network, use them to do fantastic things? It's a fantastic story of, of how, what, when, where, why, and some great examples of victories that they've had. Um, I think it's a fantastic organization doing great work. He mentioned it at the end, but one of our good friends, Greg Price, went to go work for them recently. We helped out a little bit with that. So if you need any personnel help, be sure to reach out to us um, at my email, sarab at americanmoment.org. Um, but we're firing on full cylinders here. And so is Andy at State Freedom Caucus Network. So we'll just go right ahead and listen to him talk about everything he's doing now to Andy. Andy, thank you for coming on the podcast. 
Thanks for having me. We always like to hear about how our guests got to the point where they are today. And I just found out that your story is pretty interesting. Uh, you were doing something else and decided that you were itching for the fight. Tell us that that story. How'd you end up here? Yeah, I was a stock trader of all things in Omaha, Nebraska, actually. And uh, when the dot-com bubble... So there's like one famous guy who trades securities yeah. out there. Were you working for him? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. No, actually, I almost hit him with my car, but that's what? another story. <laughs> I was coming out of a movie uh, and you know how... After after you leave a movie theater you're thinking about it yeah well i was driving and it was dark and i almost clipped this guy but he hopped up onto the curb and i look back and it was warren buffett it's like, <laughs> it like well, imagine what yeah. fate would have been but he was not I, your I, boss no okay he was, not, he was not but anyways i was a stock trader for um several years and then the dot-com bubble burst and so i was like I need to get into the game because the Bush years were coming in and that sort of thing. And and I knew some things were going to be pretty bad. And uh, so I went to George Mason, got my master's in economics, uh, and then I fell in with the Club for Growth. And I was there for 18 years. I was the guy that interviewed all the candidates for Congress, probably interviewed 1,000, 1,500 candidates, 98% of them were awful. <laughs> uh, but but I got to interview, you know, Cruz and Rand and Massey and all those guys. And, and so I developed relationships with them and Andy Biggs. And then in December of 2021, Biggs, Mark Meadows from CPI, we started talking about uh, state freedom caucuses and how in my capacity at the club, there were all these state lawmakers who I would meet and they said, I just wish we had a Freedom Caucus like you guys have at the national level. And so we talked about it a little for a little while and then finally we decided to do it in December 2021. And that's where we're at now. So so just t tell me a little bit, especially because the the audience for this podcast is a little bit younger. What was the the before time like? You know, I mean, the creation of the Freedom Caucus, even in D.C., is is relatively new. When when state reps were coming to you guys saying, "I wish we had a Freedom Caucus," why were they saying that? What did they have in mind that that would provide aid and help with? So here's the thing about state politics that a lot of people don't know is um, their sessions are short. Like in some states, it's only a couple of months. Mm -hmm. And so these are part-time lawmakers. They're citizen lawmakers. Um, and they have zero resources. They don't have staff. They don't have an office. Like so in some states, their desk on the House floor, that's their office. <laughs> and so they have zero resources. So if they want to um, know what a bill does, they have to read it. And if they don't have time, then they have to ask leadership and their staff about what this bill does. And so all the incentives are wrong. Um, now, the flip side of that is that the establishment at the state level has tons of resources, right? The governor is full-time. The, the governor has um, uh, lawyers, consultants, comms team. They have everything they need. The lobbyists have all they need. They've got all the money, the contacts, everything. Leadership in the state legislatures, they have everything they need. Who doesn't have anything? The people that are defending our rights. Mm -hmm. And they have nothing. So we wanted to level the playing field a little bit and just give them all the resources they need to succeed. And the other thing is that nobody knows what's going on in the state capitals. Whenever you turn on the TV, it's all about D.C. It's all about the speaker fight or the debt ceiling fight. But nobody knows what's happening in Cheyenne, Wyoming, or Boise, Idaho. 
And that's exactly how the establishment wants it. They want to be in the dark. Most people don't know who their state rep or their state senator is. And so that's a perfect atmosphere for very bad things to happen. But if we set up state freedom caucuses, then we give them the tools they need to fight. They have each other. And one of the things we teach them is be very, very loud. And when you do that, then people start realizing who their state rep is and their state senator, and they get engaged. And then the magic starts to happen after that. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that that one of the reasons there's this imbalance is, is that they don't have staff. It's very politically unpopular. But do you think that these members should should have a budget to be able to hire staff? Do you think it would it would be, you know, worth the money, so to speak, in terms of the overall fiscal situation in these I, states? I think so. I mean, that would definitely help. Um, what uh, the Freedom Caucuses provide, though, is accountability to each other. Mm hmm. Um, just like in D.C., the state freedom caucuses, they have bylaws uh, and it's an accountability document to keep the colleagues accountable to each other. And if they have staff and if they have support from our national group, then you're getting everything that you're supposed to be mm -hmm. getting. So even though I think tax dollars would be good to give them staff, they need to have that constant mm -hmm. accountability with each mm -hmm. other. That's when it really makes a difference. So w walk me through you know, a day in the life of or, you know, what the ecosystem of these state reps is like, because, again, people barely even understand what what the day of a member of Congress in D.C. is like. Right. I promise you it's not them reading bills and, you know, writing legislation. It's uh, it's, you know, a lot of other things. They're citizen legislatures, so it's it's sort of definitionally not their entire job. Um, but what's the environment that these state reps are operating in look like? Yeah, I mean, a day in the life of a state rep is they're at home doing their full-time job mm -hmm. and dealing with their families. Mm -hmm. So they're not plugged in fully like members of Congress are. Mm -hmm. um, and as I mentioned before, their sessions are very short. Sometimes it's only two months, three months. But when they do get into the Capitol, um, first of all, these are not professional politicians either. They don't know the policy in depth. And I know a lot of people in Congress don't know the policy <laughs> either, but they have staff to help them, right? Mm -hmm. But if certificate of need or occupational licensing, if one of those policies comes up in a bill, these folks don't know those issues mm -hmm. in and out. Um, and if you don't have any staff, then you totally don't know what you're voting mm -hmm. for. And so we see even the best lawmakers, the best conservative lawmakers at the state level, they cast a lot of bad votes. And it's not because they're squishy or liberal or part of the establishment. It's because they simply don't know. And so us just helping them read the bills and analyze them and educate them, their voting records absolutely transform overnight. And that's just by telling them, you know, talking to them about the bills, um, let alone bringing them together and actually being a, a force of good on strategy and mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So describe to me, you know, some of the forces that are causing the pain here. So what, what does the lobbying ecosystem around a state legislature look like? Yeah, I mean, in session, the, um, you know, a lot of uh, capitals, the lobbyists have floor access. Really? Yeah. <laughs> um, and then also um, that, that means they get to be in and among the members uh, you know, at their desks. Yeah. Well, not not when they gavel in. But, yeah, they're they're hanging around. Um, and then also uh, Ledge Council or LSO. The, there's different names, but it's the the group of staff that write the bills mm -hmm. that, that help you write the bills. Mm -hmm. They're fully funded by the leadership. 
And so if you are a conservative lawmaker and you go up to them and say, hey, I want to um, offer a bill to um, remove all DEI out of the, the colleges in our state, they will then alert leadership mm -hmm. and then they will say, no, that's that's not a good idea or that's mm -hmm. unconstitutional. And most state lawmakers before we came on board would say, oh, OK, I guess I won't do that then. Yeah. Uh, so there are all these incentives that just totally work against us. Mm -hmm. um, so it's 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 amazing what we've been able to do, not not me or anybody else at the national level, but just providing a little bit of support and mm -hmm. services to state lawmakers goes a long way. It's huge. Uh, talk to me about the incentives around media. You know, almost all these state capitals have a set of media outlets that are covering yeah. what's going on. Um, how how does that end up pressuring or supporting or putting countervailing force on these these members? That's a great question because the the leadership establishment infrastructure totally dominates the media. Mm -hmm. um, they leak stories. They frame the narratives. They they do everything. And our folks, they don't even know how to deal with the media. And if they get burned even once, then they just shut down and don't talk to the media at all. And so you've got one narrative coming out of the media, which mm -hmm. is the leadership establishment narrative mm -hmm. and no conservative narrative. So we flip that and we give them media training. We tell them how to talk to print journalists, how to talk to uh, TV journalists, radio, all of that. Mm -hmm. And we teach them how to properly leak uh, information. Uh, and by doing that, you put the leadership on their heels almost immediately. So obviously, it'd be preferable to have a a conservative outlet in in each of these states. But you know, there's only so many problems you can solve at once. Right. It, it, talk to me just a little because you know that's something that I I can easily just practically hear the response. It's like, oh, I I shouldn't talk to the mainstream press. Can't cooperate with the lying fake news media. How how do you make that argument to someone who's 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 resistant to it? What's what's the get, get, paint a picture for me for what valuable thing can be done if they if they do this right? They, they can do all sorts of things. One is, um, well, overarching all of this is that they need to be loud. It's not good enough to just vote conservatively. You have to make people aware mm -hmm. of what kind of mm -hmm. um, garbage is, is happening in the state mm -hmm. capitol. So we make sure that they use Facebook and Twitter extensively. Um, the the one thing that they do is the one thing that we teach is that Facebook is to reach out to your constituents. Twitter is used to reach out to the media mm -hmm. or to make the media aware. So just skip the mainstream media and just go directly to the people through social media. And then also um, floor speeches, committee speeches, make sure that you capture those on video and get them out to the people and just make them aware. And we also use Substack where uh, each of our Freedom Caucuses have an email list, and every time something happens, they need to blast it out and go directly to the voters. And that makes a huge difference. Now, that doesn't mean that we completely ignore traditional media. You still have to talk to them, and you still have to get out there. Um, but at the state level, radio is the, the the big thing. So we tell them to do as much radio as possible. Are these radio hosts just as 
susceptible to the establishment narratives I've, I've seen that a couple times where it's like it's like they're getting some sort of memo and they end up pressing the freedom caucus member with questions that sound like they could come straight out of the speaker of the house's mouth yeah there there are conservative hosts and they are very good allies mm-hmm. but then there are some that do exactly like you say which are just mouthpieces for the establishment mm-hmm. um, but we just tell them that if you don't put out your narrative then the establishment wins. Yeah. So whatever you do, whether it's engaging with a hostile reporter or with a friendly reporter, you just have to get out there. Um, that's the key. Talk to me a little bit about, especially because you've, you've seen so many people trying to step up to run for office before. Why does someone decide to run to be a Republican state rep in the first place? I think it's because um, they are upset, just like we all are, about the direction of our country. They know that they're not probably ready to run for Congress, whether it's their job or uh, their family life, and they don't want to travel all the way to D.C. every other week. Uh, So this is the next best thing. Um, And it's funny, like we've got some reps um, in the Mountain West who haven't even raised a dollar. They pay the $75 filing fee. And then they run and they win simply because everybody in the district knows their name. Um, And, you know, you spend millions in a congressional race, but at the state level, you can win for like $10,000, depending on the the state. Now, there are some big ones that were in like Arizona and Pennsylvania, which are full throttled six-figure, seven-figure races. But in a lot of these places, they don't spend a lot of money to run and then they win And then this is the key, is that once they are perceived as a threat, then the establishment forces come in with overwhelming money. And overwhelming means 50,000. But that, you know, is a lot compared to 5,000 or 10,000 that they spend on. And then they then they get beat. And so we're trying to flip that and teach them how to do voter contact and Mm -hmm. talk to the voters. So that's your your median sort of Republican state rep, why they run. How do they get corrupted? Um, they get corrupted because they have nobody in their ear saying, this is the conservative thing to do. This is why you need to do this. They've got lobbyists in one ear, leadership in the other ear. And if they provoke either one of those, then the governor will call and say, you got to be a team player. You got to come on board. You got to do all this stuff. And there's nobody out there telling them, otherwise. So you almost can't blame them. Uh, And then once they fall into the trap of always listening to leadership, then they realize that the only way for their bills to be heard is to play along. The only way that they can get a committee uh, seat is to play along. And then the corruption is full and complete. Mm -hmm. So on, on that, you know, getting bills heard aspect, you know, because the attention on these state reps is so limited even in their districts presumably there's a you know set of 10 to twenty thousand people in the district one to two thousand i don't know just depends on number who who really care how do you calibrate the incentives of these members to do the right thing when it means their bills won't get heard anymore when you know the the people who quote unquote elected them really need x y or z from them and it might be a sort of corrupt process by which they need slash want to get it but but that's the incentives um h- how do you how do you align those incentives properly the 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 truth is that committee um committees are hamster wheels 
um, the the thing that the way that the state legislatures operate, it's all about moving the money. Mm-hmm. You, th- that's the only thing the establishment cares about. It, it's it's organized crime, basically, which is, <laughs> which is which is we have a big pile of money and we've got to hand it out to our friends and we'll run the government um, that way. And so when you think about it, committees don't even matter that much. Mm-hmm. What matters is exposing that corruption, that organized crime and being loud about it. And what the voters really care about is, are you there to protect our rights and, and reduce government? And the great thing about the Freedom Caucus brand is that GOP primary voters know the Freedom Caucus brand. And so uh, we tell them to shamelessly make sure that people in their district know that they're part of the Idaho Freedom Caucus or the South Carolina Freedom Caucus. So that when those mailers come in during election time, if there's a mailer that says I'm a Freedom Caucus member and my opponent's not, it's pretty easy. Like it doesn't take a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And so even though the establishment, uh, you know, piles on a bunch of money against you, as long as the voters know that you're a Freedom Caucus member and you're fighting for them, then you'll win every time. So, you know, the the U.S., the, the, the Freedom Caucus here in Washington, D.C., um, it's existed for for several years now, and um, I think especially with with this year's speakers' fights, it could it, it could be said that you know kind of went from stage one to stage two. You know, that's it's, we're in a fundamentally different era for the Freedom Caucus. You know, members of the Rules Committee and you yeah. know, the the, the um, you know being part of this power sharing agreement, etc. You know, with these state freedom caucus networks, it's uh, state freedom caucuses. You're, you're very much sounds like still in stage one. You know, just forming, building the habits. Paint a picture for me, you know, in, in in three or four years, what do these state freedom caucuses look like? And then in the long term, what is what is win condition? Is, is the goal to eventually own the process? Is it always to be a sort of pressure force from the outside against the mainstream? How do you guys think of and calibrate win condition, knowing that it's going to be very different in each and every state? Um, but how do you how do you think about what, what the goal is? Well, your stage one, stage two things and in, in, an interesting uh, analogy or description um, in our in some of our states, we've skipped several s- stages, <laughs> and we've gone from stage one to full blown civil war mm-hmm. uh, in Wyoming and in South Carolina in particular. Uh, well, in South Carolina, all of our Freedom Caucus members got kicked out of the House Republican Caucus because they were exposing their colleagues' liberal voting records. Tell, tell that story in detail. What exactly happened in South Carolina? So in South Carolina last year in 2022, um, they offered uh, – the, the great thing about state uh, legislatures, or at least in a lot of them, is that it's, a, it's an open debate on the floor. So you can offer amendments. You can use procedural tools to jam up the works. But nobody does it because they're all listening to leadership and they have nobody else to listen mm-hmm. to. But in South Carolina, we have this great group of folks who are like, this state is, by the way, it's the most liberal red state in the union by several measures. And I can get into that as to why that is. But they just started offering amendments and jamming leadership and forcing them to take tough votes. And these are not tough votes for folks like you and me, but liberal Republicans they have never been subjected to that before. And they're almost like, oh, my gosh, we've been exposed. We have to fight back. Give me an example of a tough vote. Uh, the, there's one great vote. Um, we offered, They offered an amendment that said 
um, the underlying spending bill cannot be used for personal gain for the members of the legislature. Because the the members are part-time, right? So a lot of them have jobs. A lot of them have contracts with the government. We simply said, that's a conflict of interest. Maybe we shouldn't do that. And so they offered an amendment. And it, watching the floor proceedings, it's better than anything on Netflix or anything else. Because <laughs> the, the heads explode. Like, you're taking money out of my uh, pocket. You're You're taking food off of my dinner table. And we're sitting around like, yeah, I mean, that's the way it's supposed to work when you're a public servant. And so they offered so many um, exposure points to to reveal the establishment for what they are, is that at the beginning of this year, when they started session, the House Republican leadership forced everybody to sign a loyalty pledge. Mm-hmm. And the loyalty pledge said several things, but one of it said, you cannot criticize publicly one of your co- Republican colleagues. And the way it was worded, our South Carolina Freedom Caucus, one of them raised their hand and says, so if I take a picture of the vote board that shows how everybody voted on something and tweet that out, am I criticizing my Republican colleagues? And they said, yes. (laughs) And so they were like, well, we're just not going to sign it. And uh, what was stipulated is if you're going to be in the Republican caucus, you have to sign this. And when they didn't sign it, they got booted. Wow. Yeah. What what implications did that have for for their life in the legislature? That well, session? so naturally, if you're a lawmaker and you get booted from the Republican caucus, that stings a little bit. Mm-hmm. But over time, it's been the most liberating thing in the world mm-hmm. for the South Carolina Freedom Caucus. They are now able to operate fully throttled without any sort of, you know, finger wagging by the the establishment when they go into caucus meetings because they don't go to the caucus meetings anymore. Yeah. And so it's 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 basically it's fantastic. Yeah. And so they don't have committee positions. Uh, th- they do. OK. Um, but um, if you're not in the Republican caucus, then that means you're functionally uh, a Democrat, which means party money can be spent against you okay. in the primaries, um, ethics complaints can be filed against you, mm-hmm. all sorts of nasty stuff. Mm-hmm. Our vice chair of the Georgia Freedom Caucus got kicked out of the state Senate caucus because he wanted to call a special session to investigate Fonnie Willis over the Trump um, lawsuit. Um, we've had um, members get kicked off of their committees in Idaho and Wyoming and in other places. And so this is the first pushback that the establishment does is that they punish you. Mm-hmm. And Senator Jim DeMint said that's the natural progress of things. Um, because of his experience in the U.S. Senate, this is what happened to him, is that they punish you with the stick. And then once they see that you're effective, then they start offering you carrots and trying to co-opt you. And then if you still refuse, then they try to actually accommodate you. They're like, Okay, you want to strip DEI out of the state budget? Um, okay, we'll work with you. We'll see how we can make that happen. And we're not there yet in any of our states, but we're getting close. And that's where we start to have success. And and let me say, in D.C., bloated budgets pass, CRs pass, debt ceiling votes pass. There's very little in the way of true policy success in D.C., but at the state level, 
we pass stuff all the time that have been successful. We got rid of uh, child mutilation uh, with the transgender stuff in several of our states. Um, you know, the, there are all sorts of things. We got rid of DEI statements that every um, uh, professor at all the state schools have to sign if they want to get hired. We've got all these little victories left and right. Mm -hmm. The biggest, toughest part is the budget, though. The, that's where we haven't had our success yet, but we'll get there eventually. And what's the approach on the budget? Is it just cut, 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 or is there a, a more sort of strategic vision for what the state budget should look like? Paint me a picture of what exactly conservatives should want out of these state budgets. Yeah, well, first of all, the size at which these budgets grow is ridiculous mm -hmm. because when you think of all the Biden bucks that are coming down from the federal government, uh, when you think about all the uh, tax revenue that these states have gotten, all they want to do is spend, spend, spend. And so and I'm going to get these numbers wrong, but I'm approximately close. In South Carolina, the budget grew by 21 <laughs> percent year over year. Um, it, it, similar numbers are in South Dakota. Is that through and, increasing taxes or federal government money or it, how? It, it, it's very rarely taxes. It's all just, um, you know, the success of the last couple of years. I mean, I know the overall economy is kind of in a weird spot, mm -hmm. but a lot of tax revenues come in. Mm -hmm. um, and so the the establishment's first inclination is we've got to spend this money, not yeah. send it back to yeah, the Yeah, the tautology is our state's economy grew, tax revenue grew. That means we must spend all the new tax right. revenue. Right. And so we have to take a machete to all that and just say, we've got to cut this. But then there are also the cultural fights, which is getting CRT out of the classroom and DEI and all the cultural wars. So it's it's we're fighting it from several ang angles and just not giving the establishment any oxygen at all in order to succeed. Fascinating. Um, talk to me about the breakdown of uh, sort of fiscal issues versus social issues. I hate that categorization, but is the fight different on, on each of those two categories? How, how have you had to take different strategic approaches in terms of getting members on board? Because, you know, the the interesting thing is, is that I'll take the example of Texas, which is the one I'm most familiar with. Yeah. You know, theoretically, you know, you have these rural members that have a song and dance about why they can't support certain fiscal priorities. But, you know, th th there's not a lot of support for DEI and trans in rural East Texas. And so um, but sometimes these members, they don't vote good on that either. And so how do you think about the sociology of those two sides of the coin and how they differ? Well, it's I think your point is correct that there are a lot of liberal Republicans who are good on the cultural issues, guns and babies. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're able to deceive voters on that. And so when we come in and expose that, uh, yeah, they may be OK on those things, but look at all the garbage that they're passing that's mm -hmm. uh, killing the, the pocketbooks of so many families, then that that is a, a an attack vector. But then to your point, there are also a lot of them are bad on those cultural issues, too. We weren't able to pass a, a few good bills in Louisiana because of a, a bunch of liberal Republicans in Wyoming. They killed the transgender uh, mutilation bill because they said it wasn't a problem in Wyoming. <laughs> and they killed school choice and uh, pornography in the classroom because that's just not happening in Wyoming. 
which is exactly why you should pass those things so they yeah they god don't forbid happen. we do something prophylactic yeah right right yeah so that that's sort of the the the, the fights that we're having on the cultural and the fiscal mm-hmm. issues so it sounds like south carolina is an is an mvp um in, in terms of state legislature really good things are happening G- give me who who's who's the Razzie Award winner in terms of red state legislatures? So just the worst example that sort of militates the need for all of this. So uh, the speaker, uh, Merrill Smith, um, there are a couple of liberal Republicans, Mike Kasky. He he is the biggest hothead you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Like when this they in ha- South Carolina. Yeah. When they have um, floor debates, he's always there. Um, pushing back against Freedom Caucus mm-hmm. amendments, um, and then Jay West and a few others. I mean, these guys are horrible. And here's the thing about South Carolina: a lot of them are trial lawyers, and which is fine, I suppose. But <laughs> um, uh, the legislature appoints the judges, so you have trial lawyers who have cases in front of judges that they personally approved for that position. So there's all sorts of conflicts of interest that go on there. And even Republican trial lawyers? Yeah. Wow. Uh, in, exclusively yeah. Republican trial lawyers. Um, and so judicial reform is a huge issue in South Carolina. But just the overarching conflict of interest is kind of the 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 it's it's one focal point of how corrupt that state is. Um, and it manifests itself in, in all the fights. It's mm-hmm. it's just a money-making operation for all these people. Mm-hmm. This is not public service in order to pass good legislation and keep mm-hmm. government low. This is a money-making operation mm-hmm. for a lot of these people. So so where's the dry powder? Give me an example of, of dark red states where, where you guys want to be more active and there needs to be better members. Well, let, let me just give you two examples in South Carolina and in Wyoming, uh, because they've been doing some amazing work. Um, I mentioned before that the state legislatures are um, part time and that the legislative session is only a few months. Hmm. What we bring to the table is that when we help them form a Freedom Caucus, it's year round and not just in the th- two or three months that they're in session. That right there is transformative. It's a huge innovation that that I, I was even surprised at how well it does. So the South Carolina Freedom Caucus, some of their best work has been out of session. Mm-hmm. They uh, found out that the the Medical University of South Carolina was had a transgender clinic that was treating kids as young as four years old, um, feeding them chemicals and all sorts of stuff. Uh, the South Carolina Freedom Caucus put out a press statement saying, we see what you're doing. We're going to investigate you. We're going to FOIA you. And if any laws are were broken, we're going to look at that. And we're going to look at your funding. And in three months, they shut down the transgender clinic and fired their lead doctor. That was all out of session. Yeah. And that's just... Just through legislative scrutiny. And, and being loud. Uh, in Illinois, our Illinois Freedom Caucus, this is a deep blue state. It's pretty well recognized that they're not going to be able to pass a lot of good policy. Mm -hmm. So uh, their big bazooka is being loud and exposing their fellow Republicans and the governor and and all sorts of things. When Indiana right next door basically put a ban on all abortions, the governor and the Democrats in Illinois basically wanted to start an abortion tourism campaign quietly. And so um, in a sleepy little town in uh, downstate, Danville, Illinois, it's a red 
town, very conservative, uh, an abortion clinic was going to open up. It hadn't opened up yet, but because of our work, um, we found, we pulled the permits from the city and found out that an abortion clinic was going to open up. And so our Illinois Freedom Caucus, they put out a statement. They had a press conference right across the street and they said, this abortion clinic is not going to open. And this is out of session. There's no votes being taken, no bills being considered. But they worked with the city council, passed an ordinance, and the abortion clinic didn't even open up. <laughs> so, I mean, this is just like when, when we see our, our folks do this, it's just so amazing. And they get excited about it. It gives them enthusiasm. Other state lawmakers are like, maybe I should be part of the Freedom Caucus, you know, yeah. because of all this good work. And then one last story. In Wyoming, you have the ability um, as a lawmaker, you you have a fair amount of um, procedural leverage. Um, most state lawmakers don't rule, read the rules of their chamber to see what they can do, which is another reason why we need Freedom Caucuses is because they don't know enough to read the, the rules. Well, in our Wyoming Freedom Caucus, we show them the rules. We explain what uh, pressure points they can put. They unilaterally, the Wyoming Freedom Caucus unilaterally uh, killed film subsidies for Hollywood and they killed Medicaid expansion. Both of those bills, had they actually been debated on and voted on, would have passed mm -hmm. overwhelmingly. But because we just used the tools that, that are afforded to us, they were able to kill it. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. Talk to me about what the, the risk factors are in terms of an immune response, right? Make, having all these wins, obviously the establishment's not going to take it sitting down. What are you guys afraid of, worried about um, getting prepared for in the coming years in terms of that, that response? Yeah. I mean, the one thing that keeps me up at night is knowing that the establishment is going to spend a lot of money in the elections next year. Um, and so each of our state freedom caucuses have their own pack. And so they raise a lot of money and they've been doing great, by the way. Mm -hmm. They'll never be able to match the establishment's dollars, but they don't need to. Um, as long as they're able to get their message out to the voters and know that they're a Freedom Caucus um, candidate running against some other candidate, they're going to win. Mm -hmm. um, the great thing is that our Louisiana Freedom Caucus, they have off-cycle uh, elections. They had their uh, elections uh, about a month and a half ago, and they swept everything. All Louisiana Freedom Caucus members uh, won their re-election. Um, they also endorsed a lot of uh, candidates in open seat races, and even some where the candidate was running against a liberal Republican incumbent, and they won a ton of those too. So our Louisiana Freedom Caucus, who only have um, nine members, they're likely going to double to 18, may even go over 20, just because uh, policy is politics. And if you tell the voters who you are and what you do, you're going to win. Mm -hmm. So. I, I am worried because a lot of money is going to come in next year, but uh, our guys are well positioned. Yeah, so the, 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 your dollar goes longer if you're a fr state freedom caucus member because you know it's just you. You tell people that they're happy about it, whereas the other side has to spend you know three dollars undoing that message and telling them that upside is right side up or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When when you are able to communicate to the voters that you're a freedom caucus candidate and your opponent has voted with the Democrats on all these big budgets and all these cultural issues, you're going to win every time. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, the, the work that you you did at Club for Growth for many years was uh, vetting candidates who, who make it to, you know, wanting to run for Congress. Obviously, it seems like one of the great upsides of 
building this pipeline is it's going to make that job easier. The state rep rolls up to Club for Growth and says, I would like to run for Congress. And there's a state Freedom Caucus network. Yeah. They didn't join it. Yeah. Then, you know, that's that's that. Uh, Talk me through the strategic opportunities in terms of long term talent pipeline that you guys are seeing emerge. Yeah. When I was at the club, sometimes our interviews would be, you know, an hour, hour and a half. Um, We can reduce that down to like 10 minutes. (laughs) I mean, if you're a state rep and you're running for Congress, are you in the Freedom Caucus or are you not? That's the end of the interview. And what's great is our South. Or did you you ever reach out to you and say, you know, hey, I'd like to start one. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. No, and that's a good point. Uh, But our South Carolina Freedom Caucus chairman, Adam Morgan, is our first state freedom caucus member to run for congress and he announced a, a week ago mm-hmm. um against a um a, he's not a liberal republican but he's certainly part of the establishment he just goes along with leadership mm-hmm. and so that's going to be our first test and adam's great he's just an absolute warrior and um i i think he's going to win and he's yeah. got the support of ralph norman uh freedom caucus member from south carolina too and jim DeMint and all all he's got all of the credentials you need to in order to win. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, there is one case study where, uh, you know, this didn't go as well. Um, you know, Texas had a Texas Freedom Caucus and, yeah. um, you know, it started a little bit before all of this. It started, I think, in 2018 or, or maybe even before that. Um, talk me through how, how you guys think through that case study. What, what exactly happened there and, and why did that example of a freedom caucus not do as well as some of these examples that you're you're thinking of yeah so we don't have a copyright on the freedom caucus name um i wish we did but we don't and so there are a lot of states that have so-called freedom caucuses um i think there's one in new hampshire north carolina um, a couple states out west and texas and that doesn't mean that they're automatically in the state freedom caucus network just because they use that brand they have to come to us um, show that they have a willingness to to work with us and um, do all the things that are part of our vetting process. When we reached out to the Texas Freedom Caucus folks, it was clear that they didn't really want to actually fight, um, but they liked the idea of being part of the network because of all the benefits that come with it. Um, and so we were like, well, sorry, we can't work with you guys because you're, you're clearly not trying to actually fight for conservative values. And we've seen that play out in the in this year's session in Texas. Uh, what's interesting is that the Texas Freedom Caucus now is imploding. You saw um, Nate Chatsline leave, Steve Toth, uh, Matt Schaefer's retiring. And so I think it's finally being exposed for what it is, which is a fake Freedom Caucus group. And so what what's... Um... You know, what was it ever useful in its early days? Um, was it corrupted? And, and what, what could you learn from that process? Yeah, no, I think it was very good at the very beginning. Uh, there are some great people that were working with them. They had some good lawmakers, but there was no accountability. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, th- this is the thing is that lawmakers left to their natural devices without any pushback are going to gravitate towards leadership and they're going to gravitate to being part of the, the process. Mm-hmm. What we provide is just the incentives to do good work. And that's that's what happened to the Texas Freedom Caucus is they didn't have that sort of support structure and that accountability to each other. And so it naturally fell apart. Um, and so uh, I hope one day 
hopefully soon we can start an actual Texas Freedom Caucus because I think we need Texas to be awesome. Um, I, and Texas needs, uh, I think, uh, a network structure like we have to be awesome. Uh, but right now we just don't have it. Mm-hmm. How, how are the incentives um, different in a state like Texas that actually does have staff, is yeah. a highly developed political ecosystem? Um, I mean, that's how I got my start. I was a staffer for a Texas state senator. I mean, yeah. Texas state senators represent more people than the congressmen do. Right. Um, they have big budgets. Um, you know, what What sort of big states where where these members do have these resources have you guys been active in and and how are the incentives a little bit different in that case so let me back up a little bit and say that we don't go into any state and say okay you guys are going to form a freedom caucus it has to be organic entirely Mm -hmm. on their own they have to come to us and say we want to set up a freedom caucus so the states that we're in now the 11 states it was all because they wanted it to happen Mm -hmm. And so that's the the states that we work with first. Um, there are big states that we're in, like Pennsylvania, which is a full-time legislature. They get paid a full-time salary. They get a huge pension, a ridiculous pension. Um, and Arizona, even though it's part-time, it's a pretty well-oiled professional legislature. But we had enough people there uh, in both of those states. Um, I think we've got 19 in the Pennsylvania Freedom Caucus and maybe 12, 13, 14 in Arizona. Um, and Arizona's bicameral, by the way, which we can get to later, but it's not just a house, a state house thing. Um, but we've been able to work with them easily with their staff and, and, and the infrastructure that they have. Texas, I don't know, to be quite clear with you, we have to look at, um, who the staff is, because they've got chiefs, they've got legislative directors, they've got all of that. Mm -hmm. And so we have to figure out how we can make that work. It's a tough nut to crack, to be honest with you. I I might be asking you to talk out of school here, but, um, you know, most every state um, has a conservative state policy think tank yeah. have, have they been helpful <laughs> um you know they've existed in many cases for a long time um not not thinking of any particular state but um I'm curious what the dynamics you guys have observed that have emerged over time you know they're they're usually c3s so their first thing is well we can't be political right, right, right. you know it's uh, t- talk me through how how the experience of being the new kids on the block interacting with some of those incumbent power structures that were supposed to be the conservative pressure force has gone so there are a couple of states that do have very good local think tanks the idaho freedom foundation is one the commonwealth foundation in pennsylvania is another um, i would love to uh, work with tppf in texas there are some of those but in a lot of states there's nothing Um, But I can tell you that if you do have one, it makes a lot of difference. Um, The thing that we tell uh, the lawmakers, it's the thing that we tell supporters, the grassroots, you have to have an inside-outside game in order to be effective. You've got the lawmakers on the inside, and if you have a good grassroots uh, infrastructure and a C3 foundation think tank on the outside, when you bring those two forces together, it's it's more than the sum of its parts. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are states, unfortunately, like South Dakota, just because it's so rural, um, where you don't have that. But if you did, it would be a game changer. Interesting. Um, 
have you seen any examples where where the think tanks can get sort of corrupted in the same way that um, the members can? Yeah, um, there are some think tanks that just um, they write white papers and then that's it. Mm-hmm. And maybe they'll hold lunches uh, every once in a while for mm-hmm. the lawmakers, but then that's it. Then mm-hmm. their hands off. Um, to your point, though, there are also conservative media outlets, and I know we touched on this a little bit before, that aren't very conservative, but they've got a brand within the state that they are the conservative identity. So that there there are a lot of outside groups, whether think tanks or media outlets, that either are not good or working against us. Mm-hmm. And that just is another mm-hmm. obstacle we've got to deal with. Interesting. Um, w- w- one thing that, that I wonder a lot about is, you know, uh, replacement rate, right? So if, if these members do a really good job, eventually they, they will retire. Yeah. Um, how do you guys think about that? Is it something you're pricing in? Are you trying to get these members that are really solid to stay longer? Um, because, you know, every time there's an open seat, I imagine that the establishment's going to be t- chomping at the bit to get an upgrade in, in their direction. And, yeah. you know, in, in an open seat environment, it can be a lot harder, I imagine, to, to fight dollar for dollar against them. How, how are you thinking about that? Well, narrative? let me back up just a little bit. Um, I mentioned before about how we're taking part-time lawmakers and turning them into a full-time Freedom Caucus. But we also tell them that their state Freedom Caucus is going to live in perpetuity. Mm-hmm. Some members are going to come and go, but the, the Freedom Caucus has to be the uh, reliable, trustworthy, conservative North Star in their mm-hmm. state. And so they have to nurture that and keep that very well protected. Mm-hmm. And the other wrench that is thrown into this is there are a lot of states with term limits. Mm-hmm. And so we have looked at states where we're like, oh, you've got nine people that I think you're all awesome conservatives. We should set up a Freedom Caucus. But then when you look at their term limits schedule, you see that nine quickly goes down to three mm-hmm. after just a year. Mm-hmm. And so we have to back off and say, well, we're going to have to wait a little bit longer. So that's something that we have to deal with. Um, to your point about retirements, you know, we're not going to tell anybody to not retire. Um, they're dealing with so many things with family and full time jobs and that sort of thing. We just have to recognize it on the front end and then figure out how to deal with it. And that includes having the the State Freedom Caucus PACs making sure that they're well-funded and so that they can get involved in these open seat races. Mm-hmm. In terms of those packs, I mean, are, are, I'd be curious, is is are you guys seeing, because that there are these Freedom Caucuses that are doing good stuff, uh, a new generation of donors that would otherwise not be activated to be active in state politics becoming so? Was COVID helpful in this regard? Like people were paying more attention to their state legislatures because of COVID. Is 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 that job getting easier? Well, yeah. I mean, our case that we've made from the very beginning is that, um, yes, there's a lot of horrible things going on at the federal level. And we need to worry about what's going on there, whether it's the war in Ukraine or uh, inflation. Those are all things that we need to fight on. And that's why we have the House Freedom mm-hmm. Caucus. But think about all of the big issues that are directly in impacting your family's life. Um, you have the COVID mandates, vaccine mandates, mass mandates. You have school choice. You have CRT in your schools. You have all of these things that are directly impacting your family, whereas the, the misnamed Inflation Reduction Act 
people can't tell you how that's affecting their lives, mm-hmm. but they do know what's happening in their state. And so we have seen a groundswell of more attention being made at the state level in the state legislatures. And you are seeing donors who previously only gave to congressional candidates or to Senate candidates, and they like the House Freedom Caucus. But now that they know that their backyard has a Freedom Caucus, then they're like, well, yeah, sign me up. We got to help these guys because there's so many bad things happening at the state level. We've got to, we've got to come together and, and fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you dealt with an issue yet where guys in the Freedom Caucus up here are, you know, a little bit uncomfortable with how active and successful the Freedom Caucuses back in their states are being? I remember there was an example where someone was saying the Arizona Freedom Caucus has gone too far or something oh, yeah, at some yeah, point. Yeah. Um, well, what's that been like? You know, are, are, are some of these members up here getting shown up by, by people back home? <laughs> they, they, they aren't. Um, I mean, these state freedom caucuses they see the house freedom caucus as a beacon of freedom Mm -hmm. and that's why they want to set up their own freedom caucus um i'll tell you what though the states that really succeed in our network are the ones that have a house freedom caucus member in them and so ralph norman is sort of a a mentor and a spiritual godfather (laughs) to the South Carolina Freedom Caucus. You've got Matt Rosendale in uh, Montana. You've got Andy Biggs, Eli Crane, Paul Gosar in Arizona. Mm -hmm. And so it's been... The Andy Biggs example is interesting because he was like the state Senate president. Yeah, he was. And I interviewed him at the club too. (laughs) And I was like, whoa, you were in leadership. How can we trust you? But then after talking to him for 15 minutes, it was clear he was awesome. Um, you know, he, I will say this, Andy Biggs is arguably the network's biggest supporter because he was in the state Senate mm-hmm. and he saw all the garbage that goes on there. And so he was instrumental in, in the network getting off the ground in the first place mm-hmm. because he knows that we need it. And if you think about it, I, I haven't run the actual math, but I think close to a third or maybe a half of House Freedom Caucus members in D.C., Work came from the state legislatures. So they recognize the potential that we have. And there's just so much synergy. And whenever the House Freedom Caucus does something awesome, our state freedom caucuses pile on mm-hmm. and echo it. And it's 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 working beautifully that way. Mm-hmm. Um, another you know potential risk factor down the line, you mentioned that a lot of the victories that these state freedom caucuses are having is uh, through, you know, using open processes on these floors, um, are they just going to lock down the processes? They could. They could. Yeah. I mean, in Georgia, if you were a tyrant, you would write the rules. Uh, You would basically take the Georgia House rules and make that your rules. Because, (laughs) Because in Georgia, you can't offer amendments on the floor, which is just outrageous. Yeah. Um, and uh, so it's it's a it's an especially difficult thing for our Freedom Caucus to deal with in Georgia. But in these other states, yeah, you can offer amendments and do all sorts of things. I certainly anticipate that there will come a time where they try to amend the rules. But it cuts both ways, right? There are a lot of state reps who may not be Freedom Caucus members who want to protect the open amendment process on the floor mm-hmm. or all the other uh rules that are afforded to them mm-hmm. in committees and so so democrats s- who are you know minorities in these states 
they they rely on the open amendment process right. as well right. to make it seem like they're so, doing So uh, it's a concern, but it's out of all the things that we're worried about, I, that's probably not in the top five. Yeah. So so paint a picture for me. What, what does this all look like in five or six years? Five or six years, uh, if we still have a country, I would, uh, <laughs> I, I would hope that we have a Freedom Caucus in all 50 states. Yeah. I mean, that was the goal when we set out, is that in five years we can be in all 50 states. Yeah. And Vermont- What's the Hawaii Freedom Caucus Well, yeah, I like? mean, <laughs> Hawaii, Vermont, California, New Jersey, New York. I mean, those are going to take some time. Yeah. But there are conservatives in those states, yeah. and they need help. Yeah. I mean- um, there are a couple of states in New England that I think we could be launching in soon uh, because we have a small band of conservatives who are ready to fight back. Mm-hmm. And um, the Democrats in those states have gotten so complacent and so lazy with their authority that they don't realize all of the gaps in their power that we can exploit. Uh, to our benefit. Mm-hmm. So in five, six years, I would love it if we were in all 50 states. I would love that each one of our states grows bigger and mm-hmm. bigger. Um, like in Wyoming, we went from eight to 16. In Louisiana, we're going from nine to 18 or 20. Mm-hmm. Um, in our other states, we add two, three here and there. Um, it's exhilarating. Yeah, I mean, it, the potential is off the charts awesome. Yeah. And if we do our jobs correctly and these lawmakers uh, stay committed and they, they are the best group of people, we've got 137 lawmakers across 11 states mm-hmm. to give you an idea. You're, you're now being able to fight in all of these states and you're able to create a farm team for Congress when they, if they decide to run for Congress. There's so much potential in all this that it's just ridiculous. It's exciting. Yeah. I love waking up every morning. <laughs> well, and, and that's that's a particular interest too, right? Because I think, I think in some ways your story is is illustrative of what needs to happen. Because like you were someone who was you know operating at the federal level at the highest level, so yeah, yeah. candidates and stuff. And so to to arrange an incentive structure such that even you personally are this interested in state level stuff is a good sign for a path where other people could get similarly interested in state level stuff because that's a thing that needs to happen because we do have this attention miscalibration between the federal stuff and the state stuff obviously the federal stuff needs attention but the state level stuff does as well um well i worked in in dc for 20 years before we started this and i can't count on one hand conservative victories yeah i remember we got rid of earmarks yeah We, we cut some taxes here and there yeah but for the most part we've just been in a bloody duel uh or a you know just a um, a, a standstill with the establishment with the Democrats mm-hmm. and the, the federal debt keeps going up and up and up. And so I'm not so jaded that I'm upset that I w- wasted the last 20 years of my <laughs> life. But now that we're in the States, we're notching victories left and right. And it's just ridiculous how awesome it is. Mm-hmm. And to the donor community, um, George Soros has figured this out too. Yeah. That's why he spends money at the local level in district attorney races and, and, and all these smaller things because he realizes that the return on his, his investment is so much larger at the state. And that's what I communicate to our supporters is 
we can succeed ridiculously well at the state level, whereas, yes, we need to be in the fight at the federal level. But why spend $1.5 million in a congressional seat when you can spend that much money and completely flip a state or, you know, take over two or three states mm-hmm. for that same amount of money? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just... Have these have these establishment Republicans started calling you, you know, a D.C. special interest that's coming to cause yeah. trouble? No, 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 that's exactly right. I mean, yeah. that like, listen, there's a there's a playbook that that the establishment has in every state and it's the exact same. And they they go, OK, we got to penalize the lawmakers themselves. We got to take away their parking spot. We got to <laughs> kick them off of committee. Um, OK, then we need to blame it all on D.C. special interests. And then the next thing and the next thing. I mean, it's it's so predictable. Yeah. That's fascinating. Um, Andy, what should people be paying attention to? How can they find everything that you guys are up to and and potentially help out? So go to our website at statefreedomcaucus.org. Um, sign up for our Substack there, but look at our map. Uh, find out where you live. If you have a Freedom Caucus, awesome. Sign up uh, to, to receive their stuff. Reach out to them directly. The one thing we didn't talk about is that in each of our states, we have a state director. Mm-hmm. And this is the person behind the curtain who helps the Freedom Caucuses operate. Mm-hmm. They are the staff. Um, so reach out to that person. Uh, they're on our website. Mm-hmm. Um, do everything you can to help support mm-hmm. your state Freedom Caucus. If you're in a state that doesn't have one, figure out who the c- most conservative lawmakers are in your state and reach out to them and make them aware of this opportunity. A lot of them probably already are aware of what we're doing, but it doesn't hurt. And the the quicker we can get into more states, the the quicker we can save this country. Yeah. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Andy Roth, uh, at Andy Roth. And then let me make one more mention. Greg Price is our communications director. You helped us. <laughs> you helped us find him. Uh, Greg is uh, is just a, an amazing guy to work with. He's a force with. of nature. He has over 300,000 followers on Twitter. He's like only one of 80 people that Elon follows. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, like on the second day that we hired Greg, um, Elon retweeted something that Greg uh, put out there. I was like, Greg, Elon tweeted you. Uh, retweeted you and he so matter of factly goes yeah he does that sometimes (laughs) and um and our our other guy that we have at the federal level is justin wilmette he's our vp of government affairs he is what i call the battlefield general um he was the executive director at the house freedom caucus up here so he was the guy behind the curtain helping members of congress and the freedom caucus uh, strategize and work together. He saw the opportunity we have at the state level, so he uh, came and joined us. He's the one that works directly with the lawmakers to figure out how to strategize, how to defeat bills, how to use the rules to jam up the establishment. And so with Greg and Justin uh, by my side, uh, I think we have so much potential, so many resources in order to help these states win. So Fantastic. Well, thank you for everything that you do. Um, and thank like you, you guys man. I mean, <laughs> everything you guys are doing uh, is fantastic, too. So thank you. You guys have been great. I appreciate it. Um, go to statefreedomcaucus.org, folks, and uh, check out Andy's work. It's absolutely fantastic. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me.
Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. I certainly did. Be sure to go to Andy's website. Be sure to follow us on social media at ammoment.org. You can find me at SharmaUS. Um, in case you haven't seen the news yet, I'm also now the executive director of the Edmund Burke Foundation. So be sure to go to nationalconservatism.org so that you can sign up for that mailing list. We're going to be putting on NatCon here in the coming months, and that's going to be fantastic. Um, we're so blessed around this time of year, especially just our supporters stepping up in big ways. If you want to talk to us about contributing, you can uh, email our uh, director of strategic partnerships, uh, Samuel Sampson, sam at americanmoment.org. Um, we need all the help we can get to uh, do all the things that we've done now for many years and, and hope to do for many more. Thank you guys as always for listening. Be sure to rate and review this podcast and we will see you guys next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more. Hey.